0: Case of the Paint Spot Murders by David Moller. Detectives were baffled by the savage killings. Then they found tiny specks of grey. The old man was slumped in his favourite armchair, head tilted to one side. At least three deep wounds on the skull of Fred Maltby, 75, ran 12 centimetres from his hairline to the back of his head. As Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton surveyed the farmhouse living room, he noted that blood had soaked into the high-backed chair and splattered the wall to one side of it. Probably from the back swing of the weapon used to kill him, he thought. The top left-hand pocket of Maltby's overalls was open. A cushion on the sofa bore the outline, in blood, of an axe-like instrument. But the 47-year-old detective, a veteran of 40 murder cases, could see no other clues. There was no sign of forced entry, nothing to indicate a struggle or a search, no scattered objects that might yield fingerprints. Just a quick, neat killing. At 12.45pm that Wednesday, October 2, 1991, Detective Chief Inspector Gordon Reedman had summoned Clifton to 292 Brant Road in Lincoln, a city in the eastern part of England. We've got a body here, he had said. Looks like a murder. Reedman, also 47, had worked with Clifton on many cases in the previous 20 years. The two men scarcely needed to exchange words as they moved around the murder scene. In the kitchen, Clifton nodded at a couple of teacups on the sink drainboard. Seems like Maltby might have had a visitor, he said. Upstairs, there were indications the old man lived just above subsistence level. Frayed carpet an unmade bed. At the end of their tour Clifton commented, I would say this one's going to be a long runner. He dispatched one team of detectives to question nearby residents and another to search the land behind the farmhouse for the murder weapon. By the next day, officers at Lincolnshire Police Headquarters had learnt that Maltby had once farmed some 40 acres on the southern outskirts of Lincoln. With advancing age, he had given up farming and let out the land for grazing, but he still sold fruit, vegetables, and kindling from his farm. He had few friends and no known enemies. So who could have wanted him dead? Clifton mused. Probably someone who knew him, Reedman suggested. Neighbours said he always kept the front door locked, and there's no back way in. As far as they could establish, the only thing missing was the wallet Maltby kept in a breast pocket of his overalls but those who knew him said he never had more than a few pounds in it. So what was the motive, Clifton asked his detectives. All they could suggest was that someone was after the £500,000 that Maltby had supposedly made from the sale of some land several years before. In fact, the deal had fallen through, but rumours persisted that Maltby was rich and might have money stashed away at home. The murder weapon was another loose end. On a workbench in the back of the farmhouse lay a jumble of old tools, but no axe. Yet Maltby would have needed one to cut up the wood he sold. What's more, a tree stump in the garden bore the indentations of an axe. Appeals to the public for further information brought a flood of calls. Clifton and Reedman worked 16 hours a day, ploughing through the material. But by Christmas 1991, every lead had come to nothing. Then, on January 29, 1992, Clifton got a call from Reedman. A body was found in a bookmaker's shop, he said. Alan Rylatt, 60, lay sprawled on his back in the rear office. His head bore the same deep wounds that Maltby's had, at least eight. The door of the office safe was open and Rylatt's keys were in the lock. There was no sign of forced entry and no murder weapon. Looks like it's the same maniac who did in Maltby, Reedman said. A post-mortem indicated that Rylat had been killed by an axe-like instrument. Both Maltby and Rylat, Clifton told his officers, were elderly men who lived on their own in the southern part of the city. Both were people whom the public might have thought had a certain amount of wealth. Both were killed on a Tuesday evening, we think between 9 and 10pm. All the evidence suggested that Rylat, like Maltby, had known his attacker and had let him onto the premises. When Rylat's son Edward, 23, had arrived for work the next morning, the front door to the betting office was still locked. The killer had come and gone by the back door sometimes used by Rylat's staff. Edward helped police establish that £3,658 was missing from his father's safe. But there was just under £800 left in the safe and about £13,000 in Rylat's apartment above the shop. In both murders, Clifton said there was no determined search for money or valuables. The two murders were similar, but the victims could hardly have been more different. In contrast to the reclusive Maltby, Rylat was a sunny, outgoing bookmaker who ran two betting shops, loaned money and rented out a half-dozen apartments. Divorced, he whined, dined and pursued women, one of them married. Rylat had many friends and associates and maybe a few enemies, Clifton said detectives pieced together a list of Rylat's debtors from his IOUs and uncashed cheques. They came up with 30 names, including an accountant with a drinking problem, an electrician whose van load of tools had recently been stolen, and a brass maker from a radiator factory near Maltby's home. All had alibis for the night of Rylat's murder. With widespread publicity given to the second murder, police soon had a massive leads to follow up. But again, not one checked out. By the end of February, just one line of inquiry still seemed open. During the post-mortem on Rylat, the pathologist had found small specks of grey paint deep in one of the wounds on his skull and a slightly larger spot on his left hand. Presumably they were from the axe-like instrument with which he'd been killed. If both Rylat and Maltby had been killed by the same weapon, Clifton wondered, had it been painted between the two murders? Forensic studies revealed that the paint was at least 90% zinc. This suggested industrial primer. But the amount recovered was so small, few tests could be done. Then on April 3, 1992, a police officer in the south of the city phoned Clifton. Four young men just handed me an axe, he said. The teenagers had been boating on a lake about two kilometres from Rylat's betting shop when they found the tool in the undergrowth on an island. It looks like the axe has blood on it, the officer said. Examining it later, Clifton could see the blood quite clearly on one side of the axe head, near the shaft. The other side had presumably been washed clean by snow and rain. He also noted that the axe head had been painted with a zinc-type paint. It was an impressively neat job. Not a speck of paint had strayed from the axe head onto the shaft. Possibly done by someone trained to work with his hands, Clifton thought. Forensic tests established that the blood on the axe head matched that of Rylat. They also confirmed that the axe marks in the skulls of both murdered men were similar and that the paint on the axe was identical to the paint on Rylat's skull and hand. What's more, the axe head conformed precisely to the outline of blood found on the cushion in Maltby's home and its indentations matched those found on the chopping block in Maltby's garden. In June 1992... Reidman took samples of the paint found on Rylat's body to the Paint Research Association, a paint industry organisation in Teddington, west of London. There, tests established that the zinc had been recycled and that the binder, the ingredient that makes paint stick to surfaces, was unusual, epoxyester D4. Clifton's team learnt that just two companies made grey paint containing both recycled zinc and epoxyester D4. Only one exported its products to Britain, Rustoleum, a Dutch firm that made a grey, zinc-rich spray-on paint called Rustoleum 2185. Tests proved Rustoleum 2185 was the paint found on the axe and on Rylat's body. Rustoleum had one British warehouse in West Bromwich, near Birmingham. From there, police followed the trail back to a Lincoln engineering tool merchant, Heikeham Forum Supplies which had bought 36 cans of Rust-Oleum 2185. Of these, two dozen had gone to a nearby radiator manufacturer, Specialist Heat exchangers. If necessary, we'll interview every single person in that company, Clifton declared. But as he scanned the list of the 172 employees, one name seemed familiar. Dennis Granville Smalley. From police computer records, Clifton soon discovered why. His detectives had interviewed Smalley five months earlier as someone who had owed money to Rylat. Smalley had told police that on the night of Rylat's murder, he had been at home in North Hykerham on the outskirts of Lincoln. He was looking after his two children while his wife, Gillian, was out at her cleaning job. But had he been telling the truth, Clifton now wondered? Find out everything you can about Smalley, he told his detectives. They soon learned that Smalley, 47, had been a brass maker at specialist heat exchanges since 1977. But after a serious car accident in 1987, he had missed nine months of work. Over the next three years, he had fallen heavily into debt and had begun borrowing money. More important, Smalley had connections to both murder victims. Not only had he borrowed money from Rylat recently, but as a teenager, he had worked part-time for Maltby. On the morning of July 28, 1992, police arrested Smalley. A hulking man of 1.9 metres with short, graying hair, Smalley seemed unperturbed. At the police station, he politely answered all questions. As to his whereabouts on the night of Rylat's murder, he stuck to his original story. He had been at home looking after his two youngsters, Andrew 9 and Claire 10. Challenged on this, Smalley insisted. I stayed home all evening. I never leave my children alone. Gillian couldn't confirm his alibi as she had been at her job. And on the night of Maltby's murder, Smalley had been at home then too while his wife worked. Smalley admitted knowing Maltby, but said he hadn't seen him in 30 years. Police then learned that within two weeks of Rylat's murder, Smalley had been able to repay £2,500 of his debts to loan companies. How? Calmly, Smalley explained that he had saved the money from his earnings. For the moment, police could do nothing to disprove that. Detectives also discovered, however, that on 11 different occasions between January and October 1991, Smalley had cashed his paychecks with Rylat. Why? I sometimes worked overtime and would miss the bank's late night on Thursday, he explained. A more likely explanation, police thought, was that Smalley owed his bank so much money that, had he presented a paycheck, the money would have been seized to help pay off his debt. Smalley doggedly denied having any large outstanding debt with Rylat. Yet the visitor's book at specialist heat exchangers showed that Rylat had been there to see Smalley three times in the month before his murder, the last time the day before he was killed. Why would Rylat have bothered to go four miles out of town to chase a small sum? Smalley shrugged. He told me he had some other business on Doddington Road, he said, so he just popped in. Meanwhile, another clue had turned up. In an outhouse at Smalley's home, detectives had found three tins of rust 2185. When asked about it, Smalley admitted he had stolen the paint from his employer, but so had others. For many, it was a perk of the job. As four separate interviews went over the same issues again and again, Smalley still never betrayed the least sign of exasperation, nor the least hint of confession. There was not enough evidence to charge him, and so he was released. In the next few days, letters and bank statements seized in Smalley's home revealed that he owed nearly £27,000 to eight different banks and financial institutions. Meanwhile, detectives questioning Smalley's neighbours produced another crucial lead. In the house, almost opposite Smalley's, they spoke with Diane May, who worked with Gillian four evenings a week from Wednesday to Saturday. She told them she had been worried about the way Dennis left the children on their own when he was supposed to be babysitting. She had wondered whether to tell Gillian. How about on the night of Tuesday, January 28? Yes, Dennis went out that night, she said. May remembered because that night she had been sitting on her front porch speaking to her mother on the phone she saw Smalley leave at about 810 pm and remarked to her mother about it. Angry at his behavior she had kept watch and then called her mother back to report his return home at 950 pm her mother confirmed the story next Clifton had evidence that Smalley had lied about his last contact with Maltby though Smalley had insisted he hadn't seen Maltby for 30 years, Detectives found that Smalley's application for a shotgun licence had been countersigned by Maltby just ten years earlier. At last, Clifton could feel the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle falling into place. Still, Reedman was concerned. We've only got circumstantial evidence against Smalley. Nothing direct, he said. No footprints, no fingerprints, no hairs, no clothing fibres, no other forensic evidence to link him to the murders. Even so, Clifton argued, they could assemble a compelling case. Smalley had the motive for murder, lack of funds. The opportunity, leaving his children when he should have been at home babysitting, he told Reedman. First, however, Clifton would have to test Smalley's claim that he'd saved the £2,500 with which he had repaid some of his debts in the two weeks following Rylatt's death. Clifton asked an accountant to analyse Smalley's financial situation. Smalley and his wife earned a total of about £1,500 a month. Both had given police detailed statements about their expenditures. Was it possible for Smalley to have saved £2,500? Without significant funds from another source, the accountant reported, it couldn't be done. On January 7, 1993, police arrested Smalley and charged him with the murders of Maltby and Rylat. His trial began in June 1994 and lasted four weeks. Reedman watched as Smalley struggled to explain in a slow, even voice where he'd been on the night of Rylatt's murder and how he'd suddenly been able to repay substantial chunks of his debts. Then, after over six hours of deliberation, the jury found Smalley guilty of both murders. Sentencing Smalley to two life terms, the judge told him, in each case, The victims were alone and given no chance of self-defence. Each man was known to you and had no reason to expect anything other than your affection and gratitude. My own and the public's reaction can only be one of revulsion. Smallly listen to the sentences without protest or apparent remorse. For more RD talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.